The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me take, invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. If you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Lord willing, we'll walk through verses 9 through 12 together today. Uh, you've heard a lot of the scripture that we've read this morning uh, coming straight out of the context, the larger context of this passage looking at Exodus 19, Revelation 1, and then um, Ethan reading this central verse in our passage today, verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, let me just, as you're turning there, um, what's the difference between, and and you don't have to answer out loud, but what's the difference, just think about this, between a, a bandwagon fan and a true fan? Let me just give you some of the distinctions that I think are, are true of, of bandwagons. Nobody really likes a bandwagon fan. Uh, bandwagon fans support a team only during seasons of success. When, when a team's not doing well, you don't see those people cheering on that team. They only kind of jump on uh, at the last minute. They show up late. They show up at tournament time. And all of a sudden, they have a jersey on and you know, their, their Facebook status, you know, becomes, hey, yeah, go, go this team or whatever. But you've heard nothing from them prior to that. And all of a sudden they're there. A, a bandwagon fan is one who may, want, may go to the game, but if the game's not going well, they'll leave the arena uh, before the last buzzer sounds, you know. And some of the greatest comebacks ever have happened in those last seconds, and bandwagon fans have missed them. Well, a true fan is just the opposite. A true fan sticks with their team through it all, whether it's a good season or a bad season or a mediocre season, a true fan is there. Now, they may, they may be vocal. They may let the coach know about it. They may let the, uh, the, the other fans know about it, whether it's good or bad, but they are sticking with their team through it all. They're constantly wearing the jersey and sticking with their team. They seek to recruit others to become fans and and trying to convince others why their team is the greatest. Uh, They fly the flag of their team, come what may. True fans have never missed a comeback because they never leave the arena until it's all the way to the last buzzer, right? So my question to you is, in your, let's just Play with the words here just a little bit, because hear me out, following Christ is more than being a fan or a fanatic. But if someone's looking at your life, are they making the conclusion about you as a Christ follower that you are a bandwagon fan of Jesus, or that you are a true blue through and through, stick with him to the end, follower? That's the question that our passage, I think, brings to our attention And the question that Peter is going to ask is going to be rooted in as you are living as exiles. You're born again to a living hope. You've been loved by God, but you're living as exiles in a country that is not your own. Your eventual home, your citizenship is in heaven, this promised land, this happy land that we just sang about. We're bound for that, but you're living here as an alien in this land now. So how do you do this? How do you, how do you live as a true fan of the Lord Jesus Christ among those who despise him? That's the point of our passage today. So if you will, follow along with me as we read uh, verses 9 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray and we'll dissect this passage. Lord Jesus, we pray, God, that you today would be our teacher. Lord, I'm dependent on you. I cannot convey the truths that are contained within this passage to your people. I can't open their minds. I can't open their hearts. I can't make them receptive. But Spirit of God, you are the one who will lead us, guide us, and direct us into all truth. So today, come and lead us there and do what you do. Glorify Jesus in the process. It's in his name. Amen. Today, I want to, uh, to couch this sermon in three questions. The first question is this, who are we? Who are we? The very first of verse 9, those first three words are where I get this question when he says, but you are. But you are. He's dealing with our identity. So the question is, who are we? And what Peter, what we need to be reminded is that Peter is not speaking of those who don't believe. We've just come out of the verses before this. He is not speaking of those who stumble over the cornerstone that is Jesus and are crushed by him. He's not speaking. He's not writing to those. Instead, he's writing to those who have believed. Remember, verse 7 is that dividing line. Belief is this dividing line. And he's speaking to those who have believed. As exiles who were experiencing rejection from their host society, they needed to be reminded who they were. In the midst of hearing what their neighbors thought of them, they needed to be reminded that it was not the opinion of their neighbors that would matter in the end. That what mattered was what God thought of them. They were in the company, and it was good company. It was the company of Jesus Christ. We read about him in verse 4. They were there with Jesus as living stones, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's what he wants us to see today, that we are exiles, but this is who we really are. And so he launches into these descriptions, and he says, the world, the culture, the society around you, the the nation in which you live may reject you, but in the sight of God, God says you are a chosen race. Chosen race speaks directly to the issue of election. Through absolutely no merit of your own, God chose you. Let that sink in for just a second. That God looked on you and saw nothing in you that was worth choosing, yet God set his affection on you if you are a believer. Let me just run through just some things that that does. If, if this is true, we are a chosen race, then 
election, this being chosen, destroys pride. What it means is that none of us can strut in God's presence. None of us walks in, into God's presence with swag, right? We, we don't come in all braggadocious in, in, the, in, in, in God's gaze. It destroys our pride. We say, I don't know why. In fact, he shouldn't have chosen me. But God chose me. And it destroys pride. This choosing exalts God. It destroys our pride and it exalts God. What can any of us do but praise him? When you're left with that, I mean, every now and then I'm out with my wife and somebody will say, how'd you get her? You know, you married up, you know. And all I can do in that moment is say, yeah, praise the Lord, you know, right? <laughs> right? You know, that, that's what it is to be chosen by God. Is it exalts Him. I have nothing to stand on. I can't say, well, it was my good looks. It was my charm. It was my athletic, you know, skill or anything like that. God chose me. Praise His name. Election destroys pride. It exalts God. It promotes holiness. When you realize and you live in this reality that you have been chosen by God, you live your life in this gratitude and wanting to please Him and you want to obey Him and you want to be holy because you don't want to bring any reproach on the one who looked on you and chose you. It gives peace. Election gives peace. Since God is the one who chose us, our salvation is secure. We, we don't, if we are chosen, we don't worry that one day we'll have buyer's remorse and we'll reject him. Because if we are elected, his election is sure. He knows the end from the beginning. He is altogether wise. He doesn't do anything and then say, ah. You know, I start a, I start a home project. <laughs> Whew, wouldn't have done it like that again, right? I mean, how many times if you've done home projects have you thought, yeah, I should have measured twice and cut once, right? It's not God. Your salvation is secure. His election gives peace. It produces joy. No matter what comes our way, we rejoice in His sovereign wisdom and love. We know that He chose me and He is allowing me to go through what I'm going through right now, so bless His name. I may not understand it, I might have done it differently myself, but I will rejoice that he is altogether wise and altogether loving and altogether good in all things. This is what this means, that together we are a chosen race with every other believer. We make up an entire, the word is chosen carefully. We make up an entire race of people. We are not a race of people that are separated by the color of our skin or the particular geopolitical boundaries or allegiances that we have. We are a race, race of people who instead are united by our treasure in Christ. That He has become everything to us. That our joy is found in Him. We are united there. We are a chosen race. And Peter goes on and he says, You are not only a chosen race, but you are a royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, verse 6, God told Moses, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This goes all the way back to the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt and, and being led to the wilderness and the plans that God had for, for Israel. Unfortunately, Israel 
was supposed to reflect God's glory to the nations. They were supposed to be those priests that would mediate God's goodness and His glory and bless the nations. But in their pursuing after idols, they failed in that task. And so now, the the kingdom of priests is, is the church of God. In the church of God, we have been given the same very task. We are to now reflect the glory of God to the surrounding nations. That we are to be the ones who mediate his blessings to them. I was talking with someone this morning before Sunday school, and, and we were talking about, we, we had a missionary speaker on Wednesday night, came in, getting ready to leave to Uganda, and we were talking about how the world gets smaller as we know the stories of the world. And we have a connection with Uganda, we have connections in Peru, and we have a connection in Toronto, and we have a connection in India, and we have a connection getting ready to happen in Morocco, and we have, we have connections in Maine and other places. And the world gets smaller because we know this, and this is what we're called to be and to do. We are a royal priesthood where we reflect the glory of God and we mediate his blessings to the nations. Not only the nations that are far away, but the nations that have come close to us right here in South Carolina, not just in South Carolina, but in Greer and Woodruff and Spartanburg and Greenville and Duncan and Lyman. The nations have come to us, and it is our responsibility. God says to us, you are a royal priesthood. Verse 9 also says that we are a holy nation, that we are a people that have been, the word holy means set apart. We are a people set apart for the Lord. As such, we enjoy His special presence and favor. We come in and out of His presence, not because we go to a place, but we are set apart to Him. He dwells within us. Verse 9, He says that we are a people for His own possession, which means we belong to God. Boast in that ownership if you are a Christian. Do as David did in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, right? We are a people for his own possession. It, let me just go back to, uh, to a popular movie, the movie Toy Story, and let me just kind of bring this uh, home for us a little bit. If you lift up your foot, it probably does not say Andy on the bottom of it. If so, you stole somebody else's shoe, and you should give that back, unless your name's Andy. Um, instead, there's no name on the bottom of your shoe. But across the very being of your life, if you are a believer... God has has inscribed his name all over you. Across your entire being, being, God writes his name. Across our our talents, our resources, our finances, our spouses, our children, God writes his name. Across even our, our messes and our flaws, God writes his name. He knit us together while we were in our mother's womb. He appoints the places where we live and work and have our being. God writes his name. We are a people for his own possession. Over our tragedies and our victory, God declares mine. Do you know how we know that that this is true, that we are a people for God's own possession as, as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, the, the word possession here is another word that was chosen pretty carefully. We are a possession, which means if, if you possess something, it implies that there was a cost that was paid in order to possess that. To which I would tell you this, where else do we see so great a price paid than at the cross? 
And this is the point that Peter has been writing up until now. In verses 18 and 19 of of chapter 1, Peter wrote, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I know that we are the possession, we are the people for, as a possession of, of his because he has ransomed us. He has paid the price. In verse, nine, Peter, or verse 10, Peter goes on. He's not through telling them what they are. In verse 10, he tells them, you are recipients of mercy. What this means is, this word mercy, let us never get tired of the word mercy. Let's not grow cold to its meaning. Do you understand what mercy means? Mercy is not simply the game that we used to play. where We'd lock hands and see who could get the other person to say the word mercy. Mercy for you and I, for the believer, for Christians, is a word that means that God looked on us in our helpless state and that he withheld the wrath that was rightly due to us. That God would have been just in judging us for our sin, but God looked on us in our helpless state and sent his son, and he has withheld the wrath that was just for our our sins, and he poured out that wrath on Jesus who had no sins. We are recipients of mercy. And then in verse 11, Peter sums up what we are with one little word, the very first word of verse 11, and he calls them beloved. See, the reality is, after that list of, of, uh, of descriptions of who the believer is, living in the midst of exiles who are rejecting them, they need to be reminded more than anything that they are beloved. That there is no better word that Peter could have chosen to describe them or us as followers of Christ than beloved. He told them, you are chosen by God. Your lives have been infused with divine purpose. We are set apart to God as his own people. He brought us with the, the, he bought us with the blood of his own chosen and precious son. He withheld the wrath that was rightly coming to us and poured it out on Jesus. We are, yes indeed, beloved. That's who we are. We need to rest in that. We need to understand that. We need to know that because in just a minute in verse 9, he's going to tell us, so that... You would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. If we don't don't get who we are, if we don't get all that has been done for us through the finished and final work of Jesus Christ, we will not proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We need to be secure and rest in the fact that we are the beloved, that we have been ransomed. In the same way that a person who, who loads themselves onto a plane to fly somewhere in the world, they don't get up to 30,000 feet and start flapping their arms, right? That would be silly. If you're on a plane with somebody who's flapping their arms, they've lost it. If you are that person, you know, you've lost it, right? You don't flap your arms because why? Because you trust in the plane. We better be trusting in the plane of God's mercy and grace that we are indeed the beloved. That we don't flap the arms of our works in order to gain anything or keep ourselves airborne with him. We are beloved. 
So the question, who are we? We are the beloved. So the second question I'll, have, I'll put before you today is, why are we the beloved? Why are we the beloved? Verses 9 and 12 give us the answer to this question, the, the purpose. And uh, both of these are kind of rooted in, in these purpose clauses. In verse 9, we, it reveals to us that we are the beloved for the sake of those who are still in darkness. Verse 9, the second part of verse 9 says, that, that's the key word, that, you're all these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, child of God here today, if you are a believer, you're a Christian in this room, resting squarely in the grace and the mercy of Jesus, then by his grace we have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 tells us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a finished reality. We're seeing this thing, this, what God declares of us, be worked out in our lives. But this is a finished reality. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness into marvelous light. But this is not true for everyone. I would say to every Christian in the room, if you spend any time at all with non-churched people, it won't take you very long to figure out that there are still lots of people who are not yet living in marvelous light. They're living in darkness. And if you're here today as an unbeliever, you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you're simply investigating this thing and I would say to you, I'm not saying that based on my own opinion, and I'm not saying that in a way that I want to come across as judgmental, that I know better than you, that we are somehow better than you. You've heard Matt already tell, tell you today that we are imperfect people. But the reality is, I, I say this just as reality, that there are lots of people today, spend any time out in the culture, and you will find that there are people living in darkness. I was at Walmart yesterday with my wife, and we were buying some flowers there and uh, some mulch there and different things. And uh, I walked by a, a bench on, on the front side of Walmart. I went down to get a buggy, and I came back, and I heard a man on the phone. And uh, just crude and vulgar and vile language. And children walking in with their parents and this sort of thing. And I was just, I was just repulsed by it. Um, and I, I stopped, and I thought, that man's in darkness. I can't expect a man in darkness to understand that he's in darkness and to want to live in the light. He's in darkness. The reality is that there are plenty that are living in darkness. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated. There's that word that's used on those who are outside of Christ. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And don't bristle if you're an unbeliever here at that word ignorance. It is, it is just a reality. You're, you're, you're unknowing about the things of God in the way that we know them. And that's not an elitist statement. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case... For an unbeliever, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is the reality. Christians in the room, the unbelievers that you encounter in life, 
They're not living the way they are living simply because they're fully aware of light and darkness and choosing to live this way. They're choosing according to their nature. They're in darkness. Satan has blinded their eyes so that they can't see the light of the gospel. There are plenty of people who are living their lives completely unaware that they are in darkness. Kevin DeYoung uh, describes the moment that the Holy Spirit calls a person out of their darkness. In other words, the moment a person is regenerated or born again. Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor, um, getting ready to come to the Charlotte area um, to be one of our neighbors, but uh, he said it this way, it's as if the world is having a nice romantic candlelight dinner, thinking everything is sirloin and roses, and voila. The Spirit flips on the lights to expose cockroaches scurrying up the walls and garbage strewn about the floor. And this is the reality. Sometimes you go to a restaurant and, and uh, you, you probably you think, I'm kind of glad it's dim in here because I probably wouldn't want to see things if they really kind of brought the lights up. And this is how it is to live without the light of the gospel. You don't know you're in darkness. You don't see the things around you. They don't bother you because you don't really understand that they're there. And John 3.19, though, tells us that we are the beloved for the sake of those who are still in darkness. John 3.19 says, but this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is their nature. And the reality is that the judgment is here, and if someone does not point them to the light, show them the darkness in which they are residing, they are heading for this judgment. For their sake, we are the beloved. Not only for their sake, though, this is why are we the beloved, not only for the sake of those who are still living in darkness, but also for the glory of God. Verse 12 gives us this. Verse 12, the second part of verse 12 says, So that, again, the important word there, so that when they, the culture around us, when they speak against you as a believer, as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now this is a paraphrase that Peter gives of a direct statement that he heard from the mouth of Jesus. Remember, Peter is one of the, one of the apostles. He's one of the disciples that, that walked with Jesus. And he heard, recorded for us in Matthew 5, 16, he heard Jesus say, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And Peter takes this and says in his letter here to his, his readers, Live in such a way that when they speak of you as an evildoer, that they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's simply repeating in his own words what Jesus has said. And I would say to you as pastor, as born-again exiles, there will always be tension between us and the world. Now, there should not be unnecessary tension between us and the world. We should not be creating tension between us and the world unnecessarily. There will always be some tension between us and the world. They will look at our lives and and our beliefs and they will find them strange. They will think us to be weird. 
We should not be unnecessarily weird, right? You ever known an unnecessarily weird Christian? Nobody wants to speak up right now. Maybe you're sitting next to them. I don't know. Hopefully not. We're not to be unnecessarily weird. Our beliefs, our actions will lead them to this conclusion on their own. There will always be this tension. If you go back to the early church, early Christians, they didn't attend the, the, the gladiator games. And for not going to these games under the Roman Empire, they were considered to be antisocial. Why would they not go to these games? Later on, they would become the contestants on the arena floor, but they were considered to be antisocial. Why won't you go? They didn't fight in Caesar's army. They didn't support abortion or infanticide. In those days, if you didn't have the, uh, the, the, the child that you wanted, if, if, you, if you had a girl and you really wanted a boy, which was predominantly the case uh, back, back then, it was, it was perfectly fine to simply abandon that child to die on its own. And Christians were the ones who came in and supported caring for those unwanted children. Christians empowered women and something that was completely just off-putting to that society. They opposed sex outside of marriage and same-sex practice. That's one that hits home even today. We today are called to, to hold firm to the realities of, of what God deems to be good and right and those things that, that he deems to be wrong. We are to, to, to not compromise on those things, but we are to live in a culture in such a way that says right is wrong and wrong is right. And how do we, how do we not compromise but still winsomely engage for the sake of those who are still living in darkness? Early Christians, they, they were radically for the poor, they, in their gatherings, they mixed the races and classes together. This was considered to be scandalous. And then probably worst of all, they believed that Christ was exclusively the only way to salvation. In a very polytheistic society where there was, there was a multitude of deities, Christians were standing and saying, no, no, there's only one God. And he's the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And so for all those things, we will be considered weird And we should be. This caused the surrounding culture to speak against them as evildoers. And this will happen to us as well. And I would just ask you, what is the natural response when someone speaks against you as an evildoer for standing for Christ? I think the natural response is one of two things. Someone speaks against you as an evildoer, you retaliate, right? You respond. Oh, yeah? You know, and you bristle and you come back. The other natural response is, well, I'll withdraw. I'll just, I'll just seclude myself away from society to where I won't have to engage. I won't have to be around this. No one will, no one will speak evil of me because they won't know me. And neither of those is the response that Peter calls his readers to. God calls us to a very different response. Peter urged his readers instead not to retaliate, not to withdraw, but to live as resident aliens. Those who knew that their citizenship was somewhere else, but they were living not as tourists in a land not their own, but instead they were living as permanent residents there. They were to put down roots. I once served with a pastor in eastern Kentucky, and he had, 
He had pastored a church two hours north before he'd come to be the pastor of this particular church. And, and uh, he'd been at the church for five years. And uh, every month, he and his wife would get back in their car, and uh, they would go back up to this town that they were, they'd been pastors in before, and they would go up there, and they would get their hair cut, and they would get their prescriptions, and they would do their banking and all these things up there. And you know what that said to the people of this, the town in which they were living at the moment? You're not from here. You don't live here. Your residence is somewhere else. You're just visiting. And what God says to us here through Peter is, as we are living as those who will be outcast and considered weird, we are to put down roots. Not roots in such a way that we latch on and and begin to pick up the same values that the culture values but that we put down roots, that we sell the house and we buy one here, that we, that, that we begin to, to live in such a way that even though the surrounding culture doesn't agree with us, that they won't be able to deny the beauty of our actions. You know, there are certain character qualities that are, that are universally accepted as beautiful. You go anywhere in the world and you speak of love and honor and respect and duty and justice and commitment. And anywhere you go in the world and those things will be revered as beautiful. Those are beautiful characteristics. And what Peter is saying is there may be points of tension where you cannot agree with the culture in which you are currently living. And I'm not asking you to to wash those convictions away. I'm not asking you to to tear pages out of your Bible and throw those away so that you can live there and and celebrate the, the same things the culture celebrates. Instead, what Peter says is live there in such a way that is honorable to God and that is also beautiful in the sight of those people. Now, here's how. Well, let me just, before I go to how, in in doing this, in putting down roots, in in living here as resident aliens, God will be glorified. I've got to hurry through this because I I know I'm getting late, but when when the Bible here says in the day of visitation, it it could be interpreted uh, one of two ways. He says there in verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So one of two ways this is interpreted for us. One is it's speaking of this final judgment day when Christ returns. And in that day, when they're standing in all of their rejection before the judge of the universe, they will not be able to say, unfair. Because the lives of those resident aliens will be part of the mountain of evidence that stands before them that causes them, even while God is pronouncing judgment upon them, to say, you're just. We live in such a way before unbelievers in this world that on the last day they are without excuse. The second way this day of visitation could be interpreted is the day of their salvation. On the day of their visitation, in other words, their regeneration, when they are born again, when the Spirit blows where He blows and and brings them to life to the things of the gospel, and God is gloriously beautiful to them on that day. And, And what 
some commentators think Peter is saying is that, you know, there will be people that will reject you. They will speak of you as an evildoer. You will, you will try to live in such a way before them, and you will try to share your faith before them, and they will reject you time and time again. And what John Piper said was, this is reason why we should never give up on anybody. That no matter how many times they reject us, now, I, I get it, sometimes he says, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine, but, but I have found that it's a whole lot easier for me to determine, you know, I don't, I don't know that God's done with them, and so I'll just keep sharing right? And so we're to to keep sharing. We don't give up on people. We witness to them. We live before them in such a way that that perhaps they see our good deeds and they glorify God on that day. When on that day it all comes back to them and they say, you tried for so many years to get me to believe and I was so mean to you and I rejected you and I was, I hated you. But I just want to thank you. You didn't give up on me. You, you kept sharing the gospel with me, and today it has become good news to me. They glorify God on that day. We don't give up on people. So for the sake of those who are still living in darkness and for the sake of the glory of God, we are the beloved. And here's the final question, and I will run through this one as fast as I can without doing injustice to the text. The third question is this. How are we to live for their sake and for God's glory. How do we do this? We're exiles. How do we live for their sake and for God's glory? Two ways in the passage. Number one, with our words. With our words. Verse 9, that you may proclaim. There's no other way to understand proclaim other than to use words. We must use words. Our life is not enough. If someone were to come to you and they were to ask you, what's your phone number? Do you begin to act it out for them? Or do you use words? If Matt comes up to me and he says, hey, what's your phone number? And I walk over to Matt and I put my hands on his shoulders. I lean my forehead against his. I take a deep breath, pat him on the shoulder, and I walk away. Does he know my phone number? By the way, that, we don't do that. That's not like staff meeting or anything, right? But sometimes we, we kind of approach this thing of, of evangelism in the same light. That if we just show compassion and if we're just sincere, if we're heartfelt, then maybe they'll come to see Jesus as glorious and be saved. The reality is we have to use words. Someone asks me my phone number, I'm going to begin to tell them. 864 and I'll walk through it. And I'll speak slowly so they can write it down or punch it into their phone. We want to use words. That's why Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17 of Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. I would go back to the sermon that I preached two weeks ago, and I ended speaking about the good news and how we need to share the gospel as good news. And I would say to you that when we use our words, we're faced with this issue that it is not the goodwill, it is not the good gesture that God calls us to share. 
It is not the good sentiment. It's the good news. We proclaim it. So we, we live in such a way for their sake and for God's glory with our words. We must share. If you're not equipped to be able to share the gospel, come see us. We have tools that we can put in your hands. We, we want to equip you to be able to use your words with the people that you love. Second way, though, and I'm done, with our lives. Peter phrases it negatively and positively. In verse 12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Which means he calls them to proclaim, but he also calls them to live. And these two things work together. Positively, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Negatively, in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, sometimes people reject Christianity because they don't like all the rules. You know, say something like, you know, it's just a bunch of rules. I, I've, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live my life. Maybe one day I'll come around, but right now it's just too many rules. And they think that Christianity is just too restricting to which I would give you the illustration of the train. Consider the train that runs on tracks. We could perhaps look at the train and say, it's awfully restricting that the train has to stay on the tracks. But try to drive the train in the field. The train goes nowhere in the field. Then we learn what restricting really is. We also learn what freedom really is. That those things that we look at and say, those are restricting to me, are really freeing. They are meant to be freeing for us. And here Peter says... I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The word passions is a word that means desires. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Helps us understand what he's talking about here. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. These deceitful desires. Deceitful desires are desires that lie to you. They promise you things that they will never be able to deliver. Such as hunger for sexual stimulation. Anger. You know, sometimes I, I struggle with anger. And, and you may not see that because this is what you see of me and you don't see me in the private moments of my life, but I struggle with anger. And, and in those moments with anger, aren't we just convinced that if I can just let off some rage, I'll feel so much better and it'll make everything right. What generally happens? You blow your top and you realize you've just wounded everybody around you. And then you go back and you say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Anger is a deceitful desire. Comfort is a deceitful desire. Oh, if I could just get some time away. I just need some downtime. I just want to be able to just veg for a little bit. Right? You ever, you ever been able to veg enough to where you didn't have to veg again? It becomes this pattern. Covetousness, this desire, wanting what others have, wanting the things of this world. First Timothy chapter six verse nine says, "Those who desire, same word, passion. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." 
So Peter here says to them, keep your conduct honorable. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then he adds this little, little qualifier, which wage war against your soul. Look, if abstaining was easy, Peter would never use the word urge, right? He would simply say, oh, and, and abstain. But he has to say, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain because he knows his passions, they wage war on you. That the struggle is real. That there is depth. There are layers to this struggle, right? That these passions are fighting men. That they wage war on your soul. What they're trying to do is to blind you to the marvelous light. If they can get your attention off of the light, they'll thrust you back into darkness. You'll be consumed with comfort and covetousness and hunger for sexual stimulation and all of those things. Before you know it, you're living in the midst of that and you've lost all sight of the light. So he says to them, I urge you to abstain from these things, to wage war, to not sit back and just let them attack your life, but instead to actively, remember the phrase he used just a little a few weeks back? To gird up the loins of your mind. We talked about that in those days that was they'd pull the robe up between their legs and put a belt around it so that they were ready to run or to go into battle. You and I are to gird up the loins of our minds because our passions wage war on our soul. So here's the point. We are the beloved. We are the beloved for the sake of those who are still in darkness and for his glory. And we live, we live for their sake and for his glory with our words and with our lives. We are resident Aliens. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that you love us. And Lord, I pray that you would take this passage, Lord, and that you would bring it home to our minds and our hearts, God, that you would press these things in. Lord, for some that are here today and they struggle with identity in you, Lord, help them to stop flapping their wings and, God, to just rest in your grace to rest in who you say that they are. God, for those who have become complacent and that are content to sit on the bench and just be part of the team, just wear the jersey, but have no intention of ever getting onto the court or onto the field, God, would you call us off the bench for the sake of those who are in darkness, God. For your glory, God. God, would you... Give us that desire, and with those desires, Lord, would you match it with the ability, the the spirit, the power, the equipping. God, all those things, Lord, do it for your own namesake. Lord, I pray that you would use this response, this time we've scheduled here, God. Lord, that you would work, that you'd work in our hearts, our minds, Lord, you'd draw us to yourself. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect, which means that Ethan and the the band will play and uh, we give you an opportunity to simply sit um, and to think about these things, to consider what's been said, to take stock of where you are 
to ask the Spirit to speak to you. And then Ethan will direct you to stand and, and to sing, and that's a moment where we've built in for you to be able to respond. Now, we schedule these things knowing that ultimately we're not sovereign, that God is sovereign and God can work any way he wants to work. So feel free to move as he directs you. But if during this response, if, if I can be of any assistance to you, I'm going to be seated on the front row. I'd love to speak with you. I'd love to help you. Um, if, if maybe perhaps you're not needing to speak to me, but God is speaking right to you and you just need to pray, then there will be people in a prayer room through the doors on my right out to your left that would love to just pray with you. Perhaps the only response you need is to lift your voice and praise the one who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So whatever it is that the Lord calls you to today, say yes to him. Don't harden your hearts. Respond in faith. Let's worship him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.